At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. I am Brian Sullivan in for Kelly Evans pretty much all week. So here's what's ahead. More good news on the economic front today and more pushback on premature rate cuts from Jay Powell. So where does that leave you and your money? Plus, AI needs H2O. And that's putting this company in a pretty good position. It also just moved into a top 10 spot on CNBC's Just 100 list. The name and the CEO ahead. And a new quality concern for Boeing, once again involving supplier Spirit Aerosystems. The company on deck to report we've got the action, the story, and the trade into the print for that stock and two others. An earnings exchange, we'll get to all that. We begin with today's markets, Mr. Dominic Chu, and the number is in a lot of red. It is, Brian, but the red is not really pervasive. It's not terrible yet. We're only about a quarter of a percent away from the record highs that we saw just over the course of the last couple of days here. But right now, the Dow Industrials are down about 277 points, three quarters of 1%, so a real downside move there. The S&P 500 is at 49.44. It's down 14 points, roughly one quarter of 1%. And to give you an idea, at the highs of the session, we were still down one point and down 40 points at the low, so considerably off that lower part of the intraday trading range for the S&P 500. So keep an eye on that. The Nasdaq Composite outperforming fuel, only down about one quarter of 1%, down 40 points, 15,588 the last trade there. Where we are seeing quite a bit of action, especially over the last couple of days on the heels of that big Fed rate meeting, is in interest rates. We're going to focus you in specifically on the longer-term 10-year Treasury note yield. You can currently see 4.15% where we are. Remember, that move higher off the cycle lows that we've seen here, just about 3.79% at those lows. It's been quite a move here, and just in the last couple of days, and today specifically, shot up notably higher. So again, rate cut expectations, how the economy's playing out, all of that stuff factoring into at least a move lower in rates shorter term and then a spike higher over the last couple of days. We'll see if that trend plays out. And then the stock of the day right now, Caterpillar shares and earnings beat. Generally speaking, you can see they're up about 2%. Revenues were a miss, but in this story here, Caterpillar, which many consider a global bellwether because it's heavy machinery is used all over the place. North America is the key story here. All of the infrastructure and construction spending here is outweighing a lot of the negatives from the pullback that we're seeing in other places, emerging markets, that sort of thing. So Caterpillar shares up about six and a half points right now, 2% of the upside. It's roughly 40 to 50 points for the Dow upside today. So we'll see if that plays out, Bri. Caterpillar, a big stock to watch. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Don, thank you very much. So the odds for a March and maybe even a May rate cut continue to go down. The odds for a June rate cut are now at 94%, and that is when your next guest sees the first cut as well. And while she only sees three cuts in total this year, she also sees catalysts in place that could fuel the next leg of a bull market. Joining us now, Katerina Simonetti, Senior VP and Private Wealth Advisor at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. Katerina, good to see you again, especially in the daylight hours. What are those, those other catalysts that you see? Well, Brian, thank you for having me on the show. You know, it seems that the 
market is, you know, all involved in trying to figure out exactly what the Fed is going to do, you know, which is, of course, impossible. You know, we know we are not going to have any more rate hike, rate hikes, and we know rates are on their way down. We just don't know exactly, you know, when this is going to happen. And Jay Powell on um, the uh, in his recent address, you know, said that the March is most likely to quick and that they have to be patient given the strength of the economy. So we have to wait for the data to come in and see if we actually are going to see the uh, sufficient economic slowdown. But our goal is the rate cut in June and all in three rate cuts for the year. Okay. If if we change the rate cut forecast again, because let's be clear, we were at higher odds. I mean, just because Wall Street has 94% chances in June, that could be adjusted back either way. We've already readjusted in the last week or two. What if that, that three rate cut chance goes down again to, to one or two or, or zero? And Brian, that's absolutely possible. I mean, zero is highly unlikely because, you know, we there are expectations that, you know, they're going to start and go into the easing mode. So most likely we're going to see some rate cuts, you know, but data will have to be supportive of this. And, you know, we see the earnings that are coming in, you know, somewhat mixed, you know, so when we look at the sectors and the way that they're positioned, you know, overall this year, you know, we actually see a lot of opportunities specifically in uh, sectors that are embracing digitization and the cost cutting, you know, through the use of artificial intelligence. And this doesn't just involve technology, this involves healthcare and industrials and, um, financials. So, you know, of course, there are expectations that rates are going to be lower and the overall environment is going to be, you know, a little bit more supportive of success, you know, but it, Fed is going to do what they will do. And as Jay Powell said, they have to be patient. They have to wait for the data to come in. And that's most likely what they're going to do. Yeah, crazy times. I mean, you got increased conflict in the Middle East. You got the Ch China's economy, by the way, which looks like it is just spiraling into some doom loop. We're going to do more on that on the seven o'clock show tonight as well and why it may matter. What are you most focused on, though? Do you focus on Middle East? Do you focus on China? Or do you mostly focus on what is happening with the domestic economy, which by, by many measures is doing quite well? Well, of course, and Brian, we can't forget that this is also an election year here in the what? U.S., back into the mix. Um, and geopolitical climate is one of the toughest that we've seen uh, in years, which throws in another wild card, you know, into the mix. Uh, and market has to be very conscious of that. But, you know, from the opportunity perspective, we're looking at defense companies and their positioning, you know, the satellite surveillance companies, the, the um, Cybersecurity companies is, is something that, you know, investors might want to look at and, you know, add to their portfolio. And with that said, of course, investors should not make any drastic changes to their portfolios based on what Fed will or will not do. We know that. We tell our clients to focus on companies that are efficient, positioned to make money, you know, because of the cost-cutting measures that they've taken before. And these are the type of quality companies that are going to get rewarded this year. Are you a big believer in the Magnificent Seven, Katarina, or maybe the, the, the Super Six if we, if we dump Tesla? Like it? Are you one of these people just all in on that and, and that's all there is? It doesn't sound like it, but I got to ask because everybody's everywhere I go, every Uber driver, every restaurant, that's all people want to talk about. It feels like it's 1999 again. 
Right. It's a fair question. And I think that, you know, it's it's hard to argue with the fact that technology plays a huge role in the success and profitability of the other sectors like financials or healthcare. Um, and so absolutely, we encourage people to continue owning technology despite evaluations because it's going to play a huge role in, in you know, the success of portfolios. And we also can't forget that historically, following the rate cuts, the large cap tech has performed really well. And that might be that other boost to that sector, not that it needs any more boosts. Katerina Simonetti, always a pleasure to see you. Katerina, thank you for coming on. All right, so let us drill down a little more deeply into one sector that, of course, is energy. When we say drill down, you know we're going to go with energy. Now, most energy stocks moving lower due to a drop in oil prices. Regardless of what's happening in the Middle East, oil just continues to stay flat or even down. In fact, the sector for stocks down 3% since the Israel-Hamas war and other disruptions, the shipping in the Red Sea began. Now, Occidental Petroleum CEO Vicky Holop addressed the situation earlier from the Smead Investor Conference in Arizona. They're causing rerouting of um, ships. They're causing ship, um, shipping rates to go up. Uh, so it's more of a, um, a disruption in, in, um, in terms of delivery than it is in terms of price. Now, price um, right now in the near term is, uh, is really driven down by oversupply. But again, this is a short-term uh, demand issue, but it's going to be a long-term supply issue. So now let's head back to that conference for reaction from longtime investor and energy investor and Occidental shareholder, Bill Smead. He is chief investment officer at Smead Capital Management and just happens to share a name with the conference. It's amazing how that works out, Bill. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's truly remarkable that given all that we just talked about, what Vicky talked about, what you and Tyler are talking about, all the stuff in the Middle East, oil's in the low 70s. What do you make of it? Well, uh, you're dealing with two issues. The first issue was that the low in April, May of 2020 for commodities, especially oil and gas, was a 220-year low relative to common stocks. And then you had a nice explosive upside from the middle of 2020 through the end of 22. If you go back and look at past uh, commodity super cycles, one being 1971 and 1981, the second one being the brick trade, 99 through 2011. There was an initial burst in those and then a, a, a one to two year intermission period. We're in the intermission period uh, of this particular cycle, but the result we th expect to be very similar to the other ones where most of the gains came in the second half of the super cycle once reality sets in. When is when is this reality going to set in? I mean, we've been kind of waiting for the setting in, but and we OPEC cuts, the Saudis are cutting, you know, Russia's output is not has been good. Iran has been selling more. We know that Brazil's been up as well. And the U.S. is over 13 million. I mean, it's quite the sort of epic global duel. Well, yeah, but we haven't restocked the strategic oil reserve uh, on on top of that. Uh, so. We don't worry too much about the short run. You know, we're, we're very long-term investors with a concentrated portfolio. So what we're looking at is we expect to get wealthy in the oil business over the course of the next 10 years. Here's how I think about it, Brian. The first uh, TV show about the oil business was Jed Clampett and Beverly Hillbillies. That was in 1963. 
you wanted to sell all your oil stocks in 1981 at the top on Who Shot JR, the TV <laughs> show Dallas about a, a wealthy private oil company. We don't even have a TV show about the oil business yet. And uh, so that, that's where we are in the cycle, in, in our opinion. Yeah, kind of, we, we forget that the second Rolls-Royce dealership in the United States, the first was in Beverly Hills. The second was not in New York. It was in Midland, Texas in the late 70s there or early go. 80s. Pretty ma- it's no longer there, by the way. Bill, uh, you, we know you like Oxy because you, Vicky's there and you're a big shareholder. Do you go a little bit deeper in, are you going to the oil field services companies, some of the smaller players, some of the midstreams? We, we, we we're dealing with what I consider to be circle of competency. And I, 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 I don't think that you won't make really good money in the oil services side of the thing. But with the major European and international oil companies in kind of a ESG coma, it, 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 it's not as good relatively, I think. See, to us, the oil and gas, especially making electricity out of natural gas the next 10 years, is the addictive legal drug. So we, we look back at Peter Lynch's great record and Philip Morris being the best performing stock from 1970 to 2010 on the entire NYSE as the people divested the tobacco business. And that's where we see us. We're, we're just a part of the way into a wonderful era where the, the resource is very much needed, regardless of whether you see a quick transition to electric vehicles or not. And the prices are going to go way higher over the next 10 years as the scarcity issues kick in. This is this is what, play. by the way, this is what uh, Saudi Arabia has been saying. It's what most of OPEC has been saying, which is this this underinvestment in the sector because people say, well, we're moving away from it. So why invest in it? You look at coal. OK, we, the world has never used more coal than it's using today. And there's a lot of people, whatever you think of it, you can hate it. There's a lot of people getting really rich on the coal business because everybody else, sort of the, quote, responsible players, left it for dead. It sounds like that's kind of the, the, the sort of the analogy that you're making, Bill. There, there were 54 nuclear reactors in Japan prior to Fukushima. There are now seven. Japan's primarily coal-fired electricity. China is 70% coal-fired. India is 70% coal-fired. Germany's more than 50% coal-fired. We're shutting our coal-fired, and the chances of the coal-fired, which in 2022 was 19.5%, being replaced by wind and solar is, is highly unlikely just to replace what you're going to lose in coal-fired. And that doesn't count the fact that, that the, the demand for electricity is going to explode the next five to ten yep. years. Hence, uh, uh, the... the the, the, the irony is the most depressing thing in the industry is how cheap natural gas is. But that's we look at that as our opportunity in these stocks. Yep. NBC News actually did a great piece over the weekend about how the Northeast may have shortages of of energy when it gets really cold or really hot because they, they don't have the gas. America has the gas. The Northeast does not have the gas. Bill Smead, Smead Capital Management. Uh, thanks for having CNBC out there. Tell Tyler hello and we'll see you again soon. Thank you. All right. Arizona is not terrible this time of year. All right. Coming up, why Mickey D's is losing investors money today. Plus, another day, another all-time high for NVIDIA. But are there starting to be some real warning signs creeping up? That's next.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about McDonald's. That stock down today. They missed on sales. That is the first time that has happened since the pandemic. So what do you do? Let's dive deeper into the numbers and what they may tell us about McDonald's and fast food in general with Andrew Charles, Senior Research Analyst at TD Cowan. Andrew, good to have you on the program. Yes, McDonald's overall sales were maybe not what some had hoped, but is this an international or Middle Eastern issue? Because it looked like the U.S. did pretty well. Hey, Brian, you're exactly right. It is really more of a Middle Eastern and European issue, uh, really on the Middle East, where uh, there was a big miss in the international developed license market. Um, That is a market where it's more exposed to developing markets. Middle East really set that market back. Um, It softened about 1,200 base points on an online basis, so big slowdown there. Uh, Unclear, obviously, with the resolution when that will improve. But I think most folks were pretty pleased with the U.S. number, better than expected, uh, better than we expected as well, pretty much in line, I'd say, with uh, the published consensus estimates. But the vibe was there was going to be a miss there. So some pushes and pulls in the release. Uh, Obviously, the Middle Eastern dynamic, though, is clearly stealing the show in the stock today. You know, stocks up 35 percent since just before the pandemic hit. So, yeah, down today, but just off of all time highs. How do we read this from an investor's perspective? They've got a great U.S. playbook, and and really the story here is largely U.S. as well as European. Uh, On the U.S. side, their scale is really benefiting them through investments and then playing offense in digital as well as value and marketing. And so I I continue to see this flywheel working for them very nice in the U.S. It's going to be more back half weighted in terms of where we're seeing the upside and think of the stock as more likely to outperform the back half of this year. But really like what they're doing in terms of the U.S. playbook that really has um, worked very, very well for them. In Europe, it's about a third of the profits, so it's a big and key market for them. And in Europe, what we're seeing there is that the uh, overall, we're seeing pretty strong results throughout Europe with the UK, uh, with Germany as well. It's really France is the one that's really the most challenged, um, where they're seeing two consecutive quarters where they've talked about a slowdown there. They're acting with a sense of urgency to improve it, but just uh, France is obviously a key market for them. It's one of the largest markets in the world, believe it or not, outside of uh, outside of the United States about 11% of their profits. And so we think that France is going to take some time to, um, to improve. But broadly speaking, Europe is holding in very nicely outside of France. Yeah, I mean, McDonald's, you know, obviously it's a restaurant company, but I learned a long time ago, Andrew, that, that McDonald's is really a rent collector. I mean, would, is it, I know it's sort of a, you know, quippy thing to say on TV, but it's, it's pretty true, isn't it? I mean, we think of them for their burgers, but this is a rent play. 
you must have seen The Founder. It's a great movie. But yes, you're absolutely Michael right. Michael Keaton, is, very it, nice. Yeah, those blunders. One of my favorite actors. There you go. He, it, it, you're absolutely right. It is uh, the heavy real estate ownership is something that they prioritize, even still, you know, in their key markets where they continue to want to own the real estate and sublease that to the franchisees. Mm-hmm. And so you're right that, you know, this is more of they have the really strong dynamic of the real estate ownership here. Uh, cleaner balance sheet as a result of that relative to its peers that investors certainly value. What's the best they hate the term fast food. They prefer QSR, quick service restaurant. What's the best fast food play, Andrew, in your coverage universe? We like QSR right now, the parent company of Burger King. You know, Burger King has lagged over the last few years, had a fantastic 2023. We think they're just getting started. You know, we think that there's a lot of plans and action for this brand on the menu side, on the marketing side, as well as less value, or I should say smarter value that they're deploying in 2024. So really like that one, while, while Tim Hortons in Canada continues to execute, our number two pick and quick service is Domino's, where they're showing nice, um, where we think there's a nice turnaround story for 2024. Comps poised to accelerate there um, that we're pretty excited about as well. So QSR and Domino's are our favorite two quick service names. So QSR, the ticker, not just QSR, the industry in general. Because it's it's interesting to hear Burger King because I, I hate to say, and they got Tim Hortons too, I think. I always wonder, like, where does Burger King fall in? The ads are everywhere, but, you, you know, they're not McDonald's. No insult to them. What makes them so interesting right now? Like, what are they doing? Is the Whopper? I mean... That's a big piece of it. You know, it's a it's really? a large brand equity for them. It's something that they historically uh, in recent years had discounted too much and now putting back on the premium side of the pendulum uh, with more menu innovation, less discounting on that to improve the brand perception. So you're going to see more menu innovation there. You're going to see uh, the jingle as well and the marketing efforts that have improved there. Um, something that's been stuck in my, ne- in my head for sure in terms of the jingle, but something you're going to see more of going forward with some more corporate advertising uh, investments going forward. And then we like the acquisition of Carol's, you know, by QSR, their largest franchisee in the U.S. We think it puts the brand more in control of its own destiny. You're going to see a faster cadence of remodeling. Um, so we really like what we're seeing there as well with that, with that, uh, with that play. Andrew Charles, TD Cowan of McDonald's, but likes Domino's and the parent of Burger King. Andrew, thank you. Have a great day. You too, Brian. All right. Coming up, mortgage rates on the move again. Diana Olick is up on what is ahead for housing. Plus, call it beauty and the beat. Estee Lauder moving up, but sending some people out for good. That story ahead. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. A big move in mortgage rates this morning and more on rents. Let's find out what's happening in housing. Go straight to Diana Olick over the magic of television waves, Diana. That's right, Brian. The average rate on the 30-year fixed crossed back over 7% today to 7.04%. That according to Mortgage News Daily, and it was thanks to a surge in bond yields. It made the biggest jump in over a year on Friday after the Labor Department reported a much higher employment number than expected. Then the ISM came in hotter than expected this morning, and the Fed has kind of made it pretty clear that we do not expect a rate cut in March. So the 30-year fixed rate had hit a more than 20-year high of 8% last October, 
but then fell sharply, hitting a recent low of 6.6% at the end of December. So potential home buyers had been getting a little break. Now it's getting harder again. On the bright side, rents have now fallen for the sixth straight month, according to Apartment List's February rent report. Rents nationally fell 0.3% to $1,373. Now, some of this is seasonal, but this drop is sharper and longer than usual. And the national vacancy rate is 6.5%, which is slightly higher than the pre-pandemic average. Now, the national median rent is still more than $200 a month, more than it was three years ago, so there's that. Rents are down because a record amount of supply is coming online this year. But apartment REIT Camden, Camden Property Trust, which recently reported earnings, noted that apartment construction starts are projected to plummet in 2025. So then everything could switch back. Brian? Yeah, it truly is remarkable because, you know, we're talking about the Federal Reserve every day, obviously, with, re with regards to the stock market. I mean, the housing market is bigger than the stock market, probably matters to a lot more people than the stock market does, respectfully to all, all investors out there. And, you know, I think what the Fed does there is just going to be this seismic shift potentially for housing, which is it fair to say has just completely stalled at this point? Well, 2023 was the worst for sales on record since 1995. So that was 2023. The expectation was 2024 was going to be a little bit better because rates were coming down. They were in the 6% range. Some were whispering the 5% range. And a little more supply is coming on the market. Now, the home builders, you're talking stocks, the builders have been doing very well, but they're still not building where they need to be. And they're still being very cautious. And they're worried again about mortgage rates because they have to pay to buy down those rates for their consumers. So 2024, in my mind, is still kind of up in the air for housing. We need more supply, even more than we need lower rates, because more supply helps to ease prices. That's it. All right, Diana Olick in D.C. Thank you very much, Diana. Appreciate it. All right, now let's get to Courtney Reagan for a CNBC News update. Courtney. Hi, Brian. Well, Buckingham Palace reports that King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer. The diagnosis comes after a recent hospital stay where he was treated for a prostate enlargement. The palace did not specify the type of cancer, but says that the king will continue with official state business as he undergoes treatment. A team of officials from the Treasury Department will travel to Beijing this week to meet about the economy in China. The news of the trip was first reported by New York Times and comes after news of Secretary Yellen's trip to the country later this year. The high-level team, led by the Undersecretary for International Affairs, will have conversations about China's trade tactics, specifically the country's use of unfair economic practices that has angered many in Washington. And a South Dakota tribe is banning Governor Kristi Noem from its reservation for her recent comments on the U.S.-Mexico border. In a letter published Friday, the president of the Aglala Sioux tribe blamed Noem's use of the word invasion to justify sending the state's National Guard to the border. Brian, back over to you. All right, Courtney Reagan, thank you very much. All right, coming up, here is your last look at today's mystery chart. It's also the first look. It is the first chemical company to crack the top 10 of any just 100 list. Pretty big move considering it ranked number 325 just four years ago. We're going to reveal the name and talk to the CEO after the break. And during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage Month. Here is Intel Chief Legal Officer April Miller-Boyce sharing her story. My maternal grandmother was one of six sisters, and they came from Columbia, South Carolina. 
and we called them the Lewis Girls, and they were fiercely independent women, and I really, because of them, grew up believing that I could be anything that I wanted to be, so having that foundation was really incredibly important. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. The annual Just 100 list is out today. It ranks America's biggest publicly traded companies on the issues that the public sees as just behavior, including better wages, benefits, racial diversity, and sustainability goals. And coming in for the first time in the top 10, after being number 324 or 25 just four years ago, is Ecolab. Ecolab helps companies conserve vital natural resources like water, and as AI is the need for data centers have grown as well, so has the demand for Ecolab's services. Because data centers need cooling systems, which need a lot of water. And Ecolab helps clients figure out how to operate those cooling systems in the most efficient way possible. Joining us now is Christoph Beck, chairman and CEO of Ecolab. Christoph, congrats, uh, not only just on making the list, because most companies don't, but tell us how you went from number 320 whatever to seven in four years. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks for, for having me. Uh, we're honored, obviously, so to, be, to be up there. We've been 100 years in business. We've been growing fast for a long time. And I think it's not so much what we do that has changed, but much more uh, the demand uh, for what we do. As I explained before, so we're the global leader in, uh, in water and infection prevention. And uh, we're helping millions of customers out there protect what's vital. Last year alone, we had protect 1.4 billion people from infection. Uh, we helped protect a third of the world food production. At the same time, we did all that by helping our customers reduce enough water for the drinking needs of 700 million people, which means they could reduce their cost as well at the same time. So in short, um, the demand of what we do uh, is more needed than it's ever been. Customers need us. They need more of our solutions. Our impact is bigger as well. So while we grow, we help our customers reduce the impact and improve their performance at the same time. Maybe one of the reasons. Yeah, pretty amazing. I mean, uh, I don't think we've ever, I mean, I'd have to go to Justin and ask him. I don't think we've ever seen, seen this, this kind of, of move in a company up their rankings as well. How do the employees react? I mean, how, how do you share this information with them? What is the, the mood and sort of the vibe inside the company? We're in a very good place. And again, it's been for a long time, you know, in good times, in more difficult times, our purpose of protecting what's vital, people from infection and natural resources, is driving our people, our 47,000 great people around the world every single day, because they know that what they do has a major impact on our customers, on the environment, and at the end of the day, on our performance as well at the same time. So doing what's right the right way, it's what's been driving us for 100 years and will be driving us for the next 100 years. We just mentioned it briefly in the intro, Christoph, but kind of just piece together the role of what you do, water, cooling, et cetera, to AI, to data centers. It's a great question. You know, those new technologies, uh, electrification or uh, digital technologies all need much more power, obviously. They need more power. Uh, they need more cooling as well because computer uh, that are computing a lot and managing a lot of data, well, they create a lot of heat. 
and you need to cool down uh, the heat uh, as well. And those are the technologies that we're providing to the high-tech companies everywhere around the world. Interestingly enough, many of those data centers, the semis production uh, as well, is in places where there is not much water to make it even more challenging. But the very good news is that most of those companies are the mm -hmm. most committed to do it in a way that's as neutral to the environment as it can be. And we have all the solutions for them to get to net zero the quickest possible way. I think you just nailed it. And, and this to me, and Christoph, I talk a lot about energy and people come at me because I say things that they don't like that makes them feel uncomfortable, but it's the reality. And you nailed it, right? So let's say I want to build a giant data center or whatever in Nevada, all right, because it's cheaper land and whatever. And I've got plenty of natural sunlight to use solar panels to help power the data center, that's great. But then what I think people don't think about is the fact that Nevada has a lot of sunlight, it does not have a lot of water. And so there is no perfect solution. And I think what you just said, and please, if I'm wrong, tell me, which is some of the areas that we wanna build this stuff in because of cheapness or abundancy of wind or water or whatever, or, or solar, you don't have the water to cool it. That's right. Uh, we don't have all the solutions yet, but we're clearly working that by let's say 2030-ish, we'll be able to have data centers that are water neutral, which means, doesn't mean that they don't use water at all, but they reuse the water internally uh, as well in their own operations. They kind of operate like nature does. Uh, we've been using the same water for, for millions, billions of years as well. Well, a data center down the road, so we'll be doing the same. So we're working our way towards that, but we're reducing water consumption of data centers every single year as we speak. And that's why with the best companies we're working in today, we're working with today, well, we know that by 2030, we will reach that. So we'll be able to have data centers in those places, the way you describe them, in a way that can produce more data, more computing power with much less water. And that's the interesting catch as well at the much lower cost, because many people think that sustainable solutions come at the cost. And we've been demonstrating for 100 years. When you think about it, Ecolab in 1923 was economics laboratory. That was a business idea that ultimately you can reduce the usage of natural resources, reduce your cost and operate better, which is really contrarian to what most people have in mind right now. Well, fantastic stuff. And, and by the way, up there in St. Paul, you got plenty of water to, to just beautiful, crystal clear lakes. I heard there's like 10,000 of them. Christoph Beck. That's right. Hang on, go to La Cucaracha in uh, South Dale Street in St. Paul. It's great, nice people there. Christoph Beck, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Brian. Good All right, to you're see very you. welcome. Moving 325 to 7, four years. Wow. All right, coming up, the chip sector has been on fire. But did you know it is also the sector with the least EPS upside? We're going to take a look at how that could be raising the stakes for a little company called NVIDIA. What's next? All right, welcome back. Shares of On Semi, they got it going on today, soaring on a fourth quarter beat, although the company did issue weaker than expected guidance for its first quarter. Deirdre Bosa taking a closer look at what is expected across the chip space for the second half of earnings season as part of today's Tech Check D. You know, Brian, weaker than expected expectations. That's kind of been a theme for the chip makers so far on semi, more traditional analog chips, but also for the AI players like AMD and Intel as well. But of course, expectations coming into this earnings season have been 
sky high. So um, you, if, even if AMD threw a little bit of cold water on those expectations, um, it's still been the trade of 2024. And then we got to look at the other tech outlooks because those actually bode very well for the chip sector as a whole. Let's look at CapEx guidance from the hyperscalers. That's Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet. That could suggest another blowout year, particularly for the AI names. Meta also expected to lead CapEx spend as it builds out its own servers and hardware, despite not being a hyperscaler. Here's how Morgan Stanley put it. They updated their cloud CapEx tracker post results last week, now pointing to 26% year-over-year growth in 2024. That's up from 18% prior, Brian. Goldman Sachs put it this way, forward-looking commentary on gen AI-related capital spending was consistently positive across all major U.S.-based hyperscalers. So all of that CapEx certainly bullish for the likes of Anet, AMD, Marvell, Broadcom, and of course, NVIDIA, which reports later this month. So the gravy train could keep going, Brian. Yeah, it could. And what's interesting about the on story, and I interviewed the CEO a couple of years ago because it's not a company I knew much about, right? I mean, NVIDIA gets all the attention. Intel gets a lot yes. of attention at AMD. But the, the thing about the chip space is that we just tend to lump them together. But, man, they're so different, right, D? Like, they do, all, was, they yeah. do totally different things, and they just kind of lumped into the same group. It's almost kind of amazing when you look at the year of 2023 because we were so focused on NVIDIA, which, you know, tripled its market cap in a year. And we talked about all the AI players, the picks and shovels. But there was, you're right, Brian, a totally other side of the chip sector, which was analog that did not do so well. So on semi was actually lower last year. And there's a broad based recovery expected, not just for the AI plays, but for some of the more traditional plays as well, which will help the chip sector this year. And, you know, it's funny because even a few months ago, we were talking about, you know, AMD chips, their advanced AI ones are going to come on and create more competition. But the hyperscalers, they keep upping their capex. So there could be even more room this year, not just for the AI players, to your point. Are you just getting ramped up already for the NVIDIA earnings? I know I know it's a ways <laughs> out, but like, I mean, is, is the San Francisco Bureau just getting set up for the mayhem that's going to be you know, NVIDIA we have, earnings? We have a calendar. We, we check it off every day that we get closer because it's so exciting. It, it's like it's, it's like something <laughs> out of the Shawshank Redemption. You know what I mean? All right. Deirdre Bosa, appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. On deck, new problems at Boeing. Once again, involving its supplier, Spirit Aerosystems. All is that company getting set to release its numbers. We've got the story and the trade on that, as well as two more names ahead. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Earnings, of course, roll on. So let's look at three more names getting set to report. The first is a company you probably didn't hear a lot about until recently. Spirit Air Systems. We're also going to talk about Spotify and NXP semiconductors, but we're going to talk about Spirit to begin. And here with our trade is Nancy Tangler, CEO of Laffer Tangler Investments. Let's begin with Spirit and some fresh quality control issues. For that, we'll go to Phil LeBeau on what now is happening at Spirit Air Systems. Phil. It's Another problem that they have flagged for Boeing with some of the fuselages, the 737 MAX fuselages that they have shipped to Boeing, uh, a worker at Spirit did flag that two of the holes in one of the uh, parts of an, a window frame may not be drilled to the conformance standards. And as a result, Boeing will inspect about 50 undelivered 737 MAXs. 
if they have to, they will do rework on those fuselages. Bottom line is that because of this, it may delay deliveries for those 50 MAX planes. They're also going to have to inspect about 40 or 45 that are in service right now. This is not a flight safety issue for the ones that are in service, but this speaks directly to the problem that we have talked about for some time, Brian, that Boeing is tied to the quality coming out of Spirit. Boeing has its own quality control issues, but it doesn't help that there have been major problems with the quality control coming out of Spirit, and that is part and parcel with the issues at Boeing when it comes to the 737 MAX. Yeah, again, Phil, put it into perspective relative to some of the the other issues, well-known other issues that that we have seen so far. Where does this sort of rank with the max and by the way i, I sure. flew back on a max nine last night from houston back to newark because you know i'm like you i'm like want to know what plane i'm on i didn't even think think twice about it but are we are we getting back to now thinking about it i think there are going to be some people who think about it i think most people they won't think about it look the planes that are in service right now and I'll get back to your question just that. The ones that are in service right now that are maxes that have been inspected and are good to go, they're good to go. It's not like they're saying, well, whatever, put them back in service. They have been inspected and they're up to standards. The issue when it comes to the current uh, max fuselages and these potential delays, not as big as the door plug issue, which is front and center with the FAA investigation, NTSB investigation, but it does speak to the quality control issues that have led to a number of delays when it comes to max deliveries over the last couple of years. And a lot of those can be traced back to the fuselage production problems coming out of Spirit's facility in Wichita, Kansas. Philip appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's welcome in now Nancy Tangler. Nancy, uh, are you taking a flyer on Spirit Air Systems or staying away? By the way, I saw your tweet last night, Brian. Very brave, very brave. Um, <laughs> Fine. So, listen, I think there's a big problem here. And Phil, uh, he totally nailed it in his discussion. It's a quality control problem and a cultural problem. So, since the first crash, this stock is down 60% in, in October of 2018. It's down 60%. It's hemorrhaging free, free cash flow. That's only going to get worse as we see delays of some of these, these uh, planes now on the fuselage issue. They're in contract negotiations with uh, Boeing and Airbus. I just think, and and an interim CEO, which is exactly how Calhoun became CEO of Boeing. I think there are better places to to be. So you got to pop in the stock last week. I would run for the exits. This is a sell in my view. Sell in your view can't be more direct than that. Uh, Yeah, I flew back on the nine, didn't even think twice about it, but some people do. Oh, by the way, FA Administrator Michael Whitaker, I'm just being breaking news. i got to put my hand in my ear. Here we go. Michael Whitaker, the FA Administrator, will be on Squawk Box tomorrow morning at 7.10 a.m. Eastern Time. Obviously talk more about that. And I'd like to also ask him why they built the security checkpoint at Terminal 8 at Newark the way they did. But that's a different issue, Nancy. <laughs> All right, next up, Spotify, up more than, stock soared, it's up more than 80% of the past year. But they're in the middle of a cost-cutting push. They've had a bunch of layoffs People are focused on their premium subscriber tier numbers. And, oh, yes, there's the Taylor Swift effect, who apparently she, she announced a new album last night at the Grammys after winning pretty much everything. Do you own Spotify? Are you thinking about owning it? If you own it, are, are you, do you want to sell it? 
we own it. We're hanging on. I don't think you want to chase it because it's pretty expensive on an enterprise value, the EBITDA basis. We use relative price to sales ratio. It's still pretty attractive. What am I paying for a future unit of sales? But you're right. The cost cutting is, is crucial. I think also they're, they're monetizing podcasting, which I think is very important. This management has pivoted with the Joe Rogan uh, contract renegotiation. They've done away with exclusivity. And so their ad spend on other platforms or their ad revenue on other platforms should improve pretty dramatically. Free cash flow is uh, very strong. And the management has a new C CFO that we think will continue the discipline of cost cuttings and cost cutting and expanding margins. So on weakness, I would buy if you own it. I'm a, it's a hold. All right. Moving on. Uh, and we just talked about semiconductors, Nancy, with Deirdre Boson, how they're all so different. So let's talk about NXP semiconductors. Good run, like most semis, up 20 percent in three months. Morgan Stanley says they're bracing for sort of a chip correction, but talked about how NXP's auto exposure could help insulate it for, from any or if, if it happens, any other downturn. Kind of goes to the point, Nancy, that not all chip companies are built the same. Do you see opportunity here? Yeah, we own it and we would be buying more on weakness. But I, I will say this, the company has been very disciplined on inventory management. So they've got about a month and a half uh, of inventory in the channel. Uh, they're going to raise that to two and a half months, which will uh, really provide support to revenues at the tune of about 500 million this, this year. They've been really aggressive in raising the dividend, 52% annualized over the last five years. Should get an announcement today somewhere in the 20 to 25% range. But I think what you really want to focus on with Autos is even if the auto segment is flat to up 1%, which is 55% of revenues, uh, there are more chips going into every uh, combustible engine car and EV. So we think that will also cushion some of uh, potential slowness. And so we would we'd like the stock and we would be adding to it. Yeah, cars are basically computers with tires on them, and they're just constantly binging, bonging you to death. That's why I like my old car, but that's a different issue. Nancy, I want to go to the broader markets, obviously. A lot going on around the world. There, there always is. But we've got all, we're basically sort of at sort of a proxy war in the Middle East in some ways. Every day now there's some missile attacks. Oil's not moving on that. But what are you watching most closely? Is it still just all about the Federal Reserve? I think that is the one thing that investors are looking over their shoulders about. I mean, it. but so far, we've seen nothing. I've, I've drawn an analogy between the 1990s and this market and this economy, and there are many similarities, not the least of which was a war, geopolitical shock, um, an inverted yield curve, a soft landing, yields. Uh, the 10-year was trading between 5 and 7% for the entire decade. We had a shortage of workers, productivity improvements. So I do think underlying all of this, the U.S. economy, is the best place to be. And we will continue to see um, spending on technology, which will drive productivity, even at a name like McDonald's, which, you know, talked about uh, how the Middle East uh, yep. hurts sales. You are seeing uh, the benefits of digitization. Nancy Tangle, you timed it perfectly. Got like nine seconds left in the program. Really appreciate it. Nancy, be well. We'll see you soon. Thanks, All right. Brian. That does it for The Exchange. Contessa Brewer getting ready for Power Lunch. If she'll have me, I'll join her. And we'll do some loud budgeting. That's Power Lunch on the next side of this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And... 
producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.